everyone. Welcome into Living Liberty Today. I'm your host, Charlie Earl. This is episode 47, and we've uh, given it a dismal title, Conspiracies and Crashes. Now, let me begin by saying that on my uh, trails and campaigning, and through many of my written works and things I've done of that nature, I've always pronounced the fact that if there were no conspiracies, there'd be no need for conspiracy theories. So my belief has been for a couple of decades at least is that even though somebody comes up with a bizarre conspiracy theory, I'm going to assume from the beginning that there are some nuggets of truth or reality buried in there somewhere. So my job is, rather than to embrace the entire conspiracy theory or to dismiss it in toto, I look at it, I examine it, I peruse it, I come at it from all sides, and I uh, try to glean uh, the wheat and discard the chaff. And so that's why I don't laugh at conspiracy theories, no matter where they come from, where in the political, economic, or cultural spectrum, because beneath each theory may lie a nugget of reality that maybe even the proponents don't recognize. You know, they see the whole scheme, but they may not get right down to the bolts and nuts of, uh, of the reality within. So given that, I've got an article I want to recommend to you from Friday, June 25th, in the Zero Hedge, and it's written by Tyler Durden, and it's called Conspiracy Theories. And what it might do for you is at least crystallize or put a framework, a structure around all the theories that are floating out there so that you can look at each and every one uniquely, or you might want to look at how the various theories interlock or interact and come up with maybe a better picture of what, quote, reality is and the culture and the economy in the fate of the nation, and so forth and so on. So I would recommend that to you uh, to read if you get a chance. That's from Zero Hedge, Tyler Durden on Friday. Then on Thursday, he had another article that I'll recommend to you in Zero Hedge if you go to the archives. Tyler wrote about how fiat money changes culture. And when you think about it, the hard commodities of gold and silver and what we might say interchange or exchangeable commodities have retained a certain amount of value relative to where the outside fiat money market or markets are functioning. For example, for a while back in the, uh, I believe it was in the 60s or 70s, they fixed the price of gold in fact, Roosevelt may have done that. My history may be sketchy on this. They fixed the price of gold at $35 an ounce. And basically, by controlling government, that's government we're talking about here, by controlling the price of gold, they managed to keep their arms wrapped around the economy and so forth. We went off the gold standard. Uh, Nixon did that, I believe, in 71. And... We basically want total fiat currency, and now it's digital currency. It doesn't even exist. 
fact, on Facebook, I shared a meme about one guy saying the government has, or the Fed uh, has an unlimited capacity to print money. And the person in the frame with him says, oh, so what? And then he says, well, why do we, if the government can print all the money they want, why do we pay taxes? Bottom line. Think about it. That's actually very logical. That is a logical conclusion when you have a government that, through the Fed, who can arbitrarily and perhaps with very little reasoning or control just print money. And we know now because of that, uh, we we are approaching a, a rapid and high-fired inflation cycle. They said officially the last quarter inflation was 5%, but if you go back to 1980 values, it would be a 10% inflation because they took a lot of things out of the market basket uh, they used to identify, analyze, and and report inflation. Uh, so, uh, so who knows? My gut feeling is as long as they're spending money we don't have and printing money to match it, uh, this inflationary cycle is only going to get worse. And so I'm going to give you a few quotes from Bill Bonner, uh, another guy I read often, uh, from June 21st. And he says, uh, there are two dark clouds on our horizon. One is a major sell-off in the markets, and the other is inflation. Now, why might we have a major sell-off in the markets? Well, he explains it simply something we, you and I might recognize as gravity. Um, actually, as you know, a stock price is meaningless, generally, unless there are underlying fundamentals that support the price of that stock. Why is that company worth $50 a share? Well, they either have assets, either physical uh, or real estate or dirt or what have you, and they have contracts and they have productivity and they have efficiencies. They don't have any outstanding decimating litigation facing them and so forth. So a good analysis would, would maybe state that that company's worth $50. And so your friend Freddie and your cousin Joel both decide they want to buy that stock in volume because they see the value of the company. Their volume purchase raises the price of the stock. Limited shares of stock means you've got a limited commodity, which more people have to fight over to get it. And thus you have an inflated price of the stock and it may settle at $55. So if you go back to the fundamentals, and look at the value of that company, you've basically got a 10% bubble or blue sky sitting on this company, more than it's worth. That kind of thing, as people continue to see that, well, gee, if Joel and Freddie and John all want to buy that stock, there must be some value in it. I'll buy it too, and soon the price is $58 or $62 or whatever. Still, the underlying hardcore value of that company may be $50 a share. And so you end up with a $62 a share price, which means you've got roughly 20% of the value of the company is overblown, overrated, and doesn't exist. 
So eventually, if this kind of thing continues, growing you're going to have a bubble to the point where somebody says the emperor has no clothes. Somebody's going to say, God, this is awful crap. I'm going to start selling. And people start selling at what they perceive to be the high point, and suddenly it comes down. What we don't know is how many companies in the market, and I'm not that good of an analyst. I don't do it very thoroughly or very often. But how many companies now on all the various exchanges globally are in a position where their stock price exceeds their value, their real value? And the point is, I think in this Bonner article, if that continues, if people continue to overvalue companies based upon their real value, that eventually it's going to hit reality and come crashing down. And you combine that with the inflationary cycle that the excessive digital spending is. And by the way, the governments and the feds are in collusion to keep interest rates low and keep printing money because they basically want to buy their way out of our debt by just printing more money, which in turn devalues your money, which devalues everything you own because of inflation. So if you're looking for a hedge, if you're an investor and you're looking for a place to put your money, other than your mattress or a coffee can in the backyard or a bank, who knows, Uh, depending on the nature of the bank and their political alliances, it seems to me they're all walking on thin ice these days with the way the economy and everything is, is moving. So if you're looking for a place to invest as a stockholder, Uh, There's an article in a a paper I get, a newsletter I get, called The Hustle, H-U-S-T-L-E, thehustle.com. And in issue 165, which came out today, Sunday, the 27th, they have the economics of dollar stores. Now, I have for years believed in a dollar store as, as a good place of investment. Many of them, you can buy the building and the land and have a triple-N lease there, a guaranteed lease, which uh, will deliver a gross in the range of anywhere from five and a quarter to even 7% on some of them. And you might find the outlier that's even up to 8 or 9% a year gross return, which is pretty good when you figure... Uh, you know, if you're in the highest income bracket, you're shelling about, you know, 45% of your gross income on taxes. With a triple N, they're paying all the maintenance upkeep and basically undergrounding foundational costs of that, of that operation. And I like these dollar stores particularly because they're generally structured and placed in lower income markets. And I think I, I read in this column or this article in the hustle this morning, and I, and I scanned it. I didn't get a chance to read it very closely. But I think I read in there where they're generally placed in areas and neighborhoods, villages, and towns where the average income is under 40000 a year. Uh, I Let me say that 
one of my fears, aside from economic concerns and things of that nature, is a collapse of the economy would basically drive us all to dollar stores. Because when you come to your big stores, your big chain supermarkets and grocery stores, the ones our governors so benignly allowed to operate while the little mom and pop stores were shut down during the pandemic, I got a feeling a lot of them are really highly leveraged. They may have a small return on gross, like a 1% or 2%, but if you've got runaway inflation, it's hard for them to keep up with that. And think about it. Every time they raise a price on something because of inflationary pressure, that limits and probably reduces the sale of that item in their various stores. So I think I'm I'm taking a long way around the bend here to tell you that I think if you want to look in the retail sector for an investment opportunity, you might want to examine the dollar stores. To give you one of my examples, some of them are in villages of like 1,000 or 1,500 people. Eh, It may be a little shaky, but I... If you get into a town of like, you know, 20,000, 18,000, I think it, in that area it may be a, you know, really sound investment. Taking on beyond the economy, my other fear I have, and I've mentioned it a couple of times on this podcast, is my fear is the, is the destruction of the grid, the electrical grid. And that could come for any number of reasons. Number one, it is structurally impaired right now. So a couple of major regional breakdowns in it would just cause a catastrophic result all around the country. But something of that nature could be repaired in a relatively short amount of time. I'm talking two weeks to a month. But a solar flare could totally wipe it out. We've been in our automotive uh, field, for example, we sent 76 to 78 Uh, We've been going to electronics in our cars rather than hard mechanics. And uh, a solar flare would just fry many of those, depending on the intensity and where where the flare itself struck on the globe. Most cars would be safe because the protection of the hood. But nevertheless, it's still a risky proposition uh, going forward. Uh, The third concern of mine on the grid is is a hostile EMP, electromagnetic pulse. Um, you know, I think things globally are getting to the point where we can expect anything from anybody. Um, and I think government, as I said many times, has no heart, no mind, and no soul. But there are governments and people who run governments who wouldn't wouldn't think twice about putting a Nuclear blast, you know, 31 to 40,000 feet and wiping out the entire electronic grid in the United States. And that concerns me. So um, those are my concerns and my sweats. This is a, a long, I'm a minute longer than typical on this uh, this week, but I don't want it to be too dismal. There's always hope and there's always liberty in your heart. So that's Living Liberty for today. I'm your host, Charlie Earl. Remember to stay free, be free always. Have a good day.